Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives. Jobs, debts, incomes, our own, our children's. And I'm your usual host, Richard Wolf. I want to begin today by taking my hat off and urging your attention to the decision of Amazon workers, lots of them, in New York and Maryland, who on the morning of March 16th walked off their jobs, making crystal clear that they were underpaid, abused in various ways, I'll get to that in a minute, and that they were demanding the changes they had long wanted and were now sufficiently well organized to demand publicly. I was struck by one sign carried by one of the striking Amazon workers, quote, without us, they are nothing. It reminded me that with all the executives making all the big plans, unless that army of people are going to do their work, it's all, as they say, nothing. And I want to drive home one of their demands, not because it's the most important, but because it says so much. They protested the reduction of their break time from 20 minutes to 15 minutes. You see, it had only been 15, and then in the enormous generosity of Jeffrey Bezos and the owner-managers of that company, it had been raised to 20 minutes because of the pandemic, the company explained. Wow. It's important for us to remember two things. One, that this action is all about what used to be called the class struggle, that endless struggle between employers and employees, which reflects the fact that they have different interests in this process we call production. And the other thing to remember is that the wealth of people like Jeffrey Bezos is dependent on taking five minutes of break time away from tens, if not hundreds of thousands of employees. He gets another few billion, and they all get less of a break from a back-breaking job that they describe so well. My next update has to do with the inflation that we're living through, and that, yes, is going to get worse before it gets better, if it does. And I want to drive home the numbers, so bear with me. As we're talking, the inflation rate in this country, the official one, is around 8%. I want you to understand with me what that means. Okay, if you were earning $30,000 um, at the end of February in 2021, and you were still earning $30,000 uh, about now, it would mean that you have lost roughly $800 worth of what you can buy. Or in simple English, you can buy $800 less today with the $30,000 than you could buy a year ago. You've really been hurt. It's exactly as if you had been taxed that amount of money as of now compared to what you would have had to pay back then. If you earned $100,000 for 
February 2021, and again, 100000 now, you would have lost $2,600 worth of what you could buy. That's what you would have suffered. Again, like a tax. But it isn't a tax because it doesn't go to the government. The money you've lost goes into the hands of the companies that raise the prices. They get more than they used to for what they sell. That's what a price increase means. So it's a tax on us paid not to the government for making public services, but to provide more profits to private corporations. Wow. Think about it. And, you know, as you think about it, think this way. We've just come through one of the worst periods of American history. 2020, 2021 were times when we were savaged by the worst public health disaster this country has inadequately responded to and another economic crash just as bad as the one in 2008. Wow. But that was nothing compared to the fact that after going through those two difficult years, the working class of America is slapped in the face with an inflation. Because make no mistake, prices are going up 8%, workers' wages on average around 5 a little over 5%, which means the working class is falling behind yet again. And that's because of the way this system works. The third update we'll have time for is this. A famous journalist, I believe it was an American journalist, once wrote that the first casualty in every war is the truth. In other words, when countries go to war, each side tells all kinds of things about the other side and about itself that turn out later not to be true. And there is absolutely no reason to believe it's any different in the war in Ukraine that we have today. Russia tells one side of the story. Ukraine and the United States and Western Europe tell another side. And I don't have much to add to all of that. I can't sort out what's true from what isn't any better than most folks can. But I want to draw some attention to things not being said that are worth thinking about. The Soviet Union gave up socialism as it had practiced it in 1989. That's a long time ago, over 30 years. It is now a thoroughly capitalist economic system. Big role for the government, but that doesn't distinguish Russia from many other capitalist countries. And it certainly doesn't distinguish it from Ukraine. The Russians and the Ukraines together have lots of oligarchs, have an extraordinarily unequal distribution of income, have a politics tainted by all kinds of corruption, particularly the kind that has to do with money controlling elections so that there are less measures of what people need and want and more measures about who spent how much money playing one game against another. And now in the world of modern telecommunications and social media, that is the, the place where much of the war gets fought, whatever else is happening on the ground. No, what Russia and what Ukraine and what Western Europe and the United States are doing is having a very old traditional fight 
who's got how much influence where, whose capitalists are in better position than others in terms of their sources of raw materials, in terms of their markets, in terms of the alliances they do and do not work out. In the past, these kinds of struggles among capitalist economies have led to war, and particularly the horrible wars of World War I and II in the last century. It is naive to imagine that we are now living in a society which will not have such wars, especially when we see a small version of them happening right before our eyes. The other aspect of this, I thought it might be interesting to bring to your attention for you to think about, is this business of the U.S. versus Russia around sanctions, because there uh, Ukraine falls out of the picture as the origin, if you like, of the problem, but now a small footnote to a major clash between the United States and Russia and its respective allies. And for those of you who don't know, Russia has allies, really big ones, China, India, Iran, and a whole bunch of others. And they are changing the landscape really quickly. But let me get to uh, the sanction war, let's call it, in which the United States has taken extraordinary steps. Uh, if I had time, I would mention the extraordinary step of seizing their country's assets. There goes private property. There goes any other country wondering whether doing business with the United States will see a conflict develop in which the United States will seize their property. For a country as rich as ours, for the reality of a world in which Americans have more property abroad than foreigners do here, this is a very dangerous policy, but that's not what I'm after. Let me remind you all that who is sanctioning who here is not a fight between equals. The gross domestic product of Russia in the most recent year I have data for, one and a half trillion dollars. The gross domestic product of the United States, 21-22 trillion dollars. You understand this is not a fight between equal economic powers. This is David and Goliath. I mean, to give you an idea, Russia's 1.5 trillion dollar GDP compares with that of Italy, which has 1.9. You understand? Italy is a bigger economic reality than Russia is. Russia is therefore a small, relatively poor country being slapped with every sanction the richest country in the world can heave at it. And I'm not telling you this in order to curry sympathy for Russia. I'm not interested in that. But I want you to understand that the Russians have ways of fighting back that are not like the, those the United States has confronted before. Our wars to this point since World War II were wars against Korea, against Vietnam, against Iraq, and against Afghanistan. These are arguably among the poorest countries on the face of this earth. Russia is much richer than them. It's a much bigger adversary for the United States' military dominance to deal with, for sure. And it's a much smaller entity 
economically to fight in Afghanistan than to fight a Russia. Russia, for example, has enormous resources in grain exports, fertilizer exports, oil and gas exports. It's a remarkable set of economic tools they have to fight back, and they're using them. Almost as a giggle, they have said, oh, you've seized our assets abroad. You won't let us use the, our dollar reserves. Okay, we'll pay everybody who sells to us, which includes a bunch of Americans in rubles, which in the past you wouldn't have accepted. But now we say to you, take our rubles or you get nothing. And you know who depends on the fertilizer from Russia to grow their food? The United States does among other places, and the rest of the world's food is going to be affected. This is an open-ended fight. We better be very careful, lest, as has happened before, those famous unintended consequences and side effects and collateral damages come back to haunt us. Dangerous precedents are being set here, and I'm not sure most Americans are facing that. We've come to the end of the first part of today's show. And as always, I want to say thank you to all of you whose support makes this show and others we produce possible. To learn more about the different ways you can support democracy at work and economic update, please go to patreon.com slash economic update or visit our website, democracyatwork.info. Please remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel and share what you've learned here today with your friends and family and co-workers, as that also helps us reach more people than we can. Please stay with us. We'll be right back with today's special guest, Dr. Jörg Rieger. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. It is with real pleasure that I bring to our cameras and our microphones an old friend of mine, Dr. Jörg Rieger. He is a distinguished professor of theology and the founding director of the Wendland Cook Program in Religion and Justice at Vanderbilt University. He is the author and editor of 25 books translated into many languages. His latest, published in 2018, is entitled Jesus versus Caesar for People Tired of Serving the Wrong God. First of all, welcome, Jorg. I call you by your first name because we know each other. I am very grateful for your time to speak with us today. And thank you for having me, Rick. I'm looking forward to this. Good. Let me begin with a, a question that's partly identification. You are the member of the board, and therefore I can ask you to tell us a little bit about the goal and purpose of the newly established Institute for Christian Socialism here in the U.S. I'm sure many of your listeners will be surprised to hear that there is such a thing, an Institute for Christian Socialism. It's not that old. It started about two or three years ago, and it was founded by some people that felt, myself included, that we needed to have a conversation uh, at the most basic level. What we want to do is raise some questions about the nature of Christianity 
and its role in our current political, economic, and cultural situation. Just to have a conversation where usually we don't have any conversations because people assume Christianity automatically is somehow on the side of the status quo, on the side of capitalism and all of that. Now, that's of course not the case, right? Uh, Christianity is not necessarily on the side of the status quo. It's certainly not necessarily on the side of capitalism. If you look at the long history of Christianity and its roots in the Jesus movement, um, going back to the Hebrew prophets of the Jewish traditions, I think it's pretty obvious that Christianity has a different message, has something that ties it to more progressive tendencies than is oftentimes recognized. So, so one of the things the Institute for Christian Socialism wants to do is to have that conversation. People might be curious, though, why talk about Christianity and socialism per se. I think many people don't know that there are parallels and connections between religion and socialism. So if you go back through history, this is, of course, not just true for Christianity, but for other religions as well. There's a history, there is connections, and in some ways, uh, there's religious traditions that are older than socialist traditions that come together, uh, that feed back and forth into each other. Now, we could talk about many religions here, but we want to talk about Christianity because that's the dominant religion in the U.S., and we're concerned about how distorted Christianity has become. So the goals, uh, to go back to your initial question, what's the goal of an Institute for Christian Socialism? Well, to have a conversation, but also to help Christians specifically reclaim what we think is more authentic Christianity and we want to see what difference Christianity can make. In addition to that, we want to help others to realize that Christianity could make some real contributions to a better world for all, better world for people, uh, better uh, ecological arrangements, you know, uh, you name it, uh, everything and anything here uh, could be part of that conversation. Uh, your listeners might be interested too that the Institute itself offers opportunities for people to connect on these issues, to have exchanges, to have conversations, and also to contribute to movement building. If you go to its website, that's Christian Socialism, one word, christiansocialism.com, you'll see there's also a magazine called The Bias Magazine, and that, of course, gives uh, interested people a lot more insights about these conversations that are already happening. Uh, Jorg, let me ask you, Am I wrong or do you agree that we've come to a time in the unique history of the United States where a dominant view sees Christianity or at least the most active components of Christianity as somehow aligned with the Republican Party or with conservative impulses, conservative politics? Do you see it that way? And, and how do you account for that? That's a great question, Rick. Uh, I, I think, uh, yes, I do see it that way. I think that is the majority perspective these days. This is what people also from outside the U.S. are seeing. You know, U.S. Christianity is very much part of uh, the dominant conservative tendencies in the United States. Now, if you look at the history, I guess it's not surprising uh, because for 2000 years, Christianity has been collaborating with empires of all kinds and sorts, right? Go back to the Roman Empire, perhaps uh, that's where it all started. That's Christianity's birthplace, you know, in 
the Roman Empire of its time, uh, and then all the way in, into the present. Now, in the U.S., though, I think there is something that a lot of people don't know, and uh, that's, of course, the interesting thing, namely how conservative Christianity has shaped up here in the United States in about 100 years uh, in the past. Because the conservative Christianity that you see today, and I think this is important for your listeners and anybody uh, who really is interested in Christianity, the conservative Christianity you see today does not go back to the founding fathers. So it's not like Christianity by default already being conservative uh, or shaped by certain movements. Uh, there's actually a history that goes back to the aftermath of the Great Depression in the 1930s. At that time, the National Association of Manufacturers saw the need to restore its image and its influence, uh, not only because of the Depression, but also because of FDR's New Deal and the social gospel that was quite active at the time. And so they enlisted, with the help of a lot of money and funding, to be sure, they enlisted a whole number of prominent preachers around the country, um, many of uh, which are forgotten now, but some names people would still recognize, including someone like Billy Graham. And they enlisted them in order to turn Christianity more conservative, not only more conservative, but also more compliant to uh, the conservative capitalist ideals at the country and, of course, uh, of, of the dominant minority in the country. And since then, and this is the important history I want people to know, since uh, about 100 years now, maybe 80, 90 years, a lot of money has been, has been spent on shaping conservative Christianity in the image of capitalism, making it ever more conservative. And um, that's the history that we're oftentimes not aware. You know, that also goes via think tanks and so on. Um, there are some books on the topic uh, Kevin Cruz has a book, One Nation Under God, that describes this history of big money shaping Christianity. A more recent book by Tony Keddy is actually titled Republican Jesus, showing how these tendencies have shaped Christianity. So it's not all Christianity's fault necessarily, but how it has been used. And of course, that's what we're trying to address with our own work, uh, Institute of Christian Socialism and the Wendling Cook Program in Religion and Justice at Vanderbilt that, that I direct. We want not only tell that history, but show there are alternatives and Christianity doesn't have to be that. So let me get then to the punchline, if I can jump, because I would like to hear you say something about why, in your understanding of Christianity, and you are a professor in a sense of that tradition, what it is about capitalism that makes you a critic of capitalism and want to revive in some sense the Christian critique, if you like, of capitalism or the Christian alternative, if, that, if that's an appropriate term. Yes, definitely. You know, the basic problem of capitalism, I think, is that it shapes us all the way to its core, to our cores, really, right? It try it's not just about making money, it's really about shaping culture, shaping politics, and so on. I think a lot of people don't realize, in this country especially, that there's a basic contradiction between capitalism and the democratic ideals that we cherish so much as Americans, right? I mean, we're proud of our political democracy, but we don't realize that capitalism, the way it functions, is actually not democratic. 
That's not only because there's money in politics. Well, everybody should know that. But that's also because how capitalism structures our relationships. Labor, for instance, you know, once you go to work, all of a sudden democracy seems to be absent. So if as Americans uh, we cherish democracy, we may have to raise some questions about how capitalism shapes us. So you could say capitalism has been damaging to our democracy. But by the same token, you could say the same thing about capitalism being damaging to Christianity. And that's what I'm worried about as a theologian. You know, I, I study matters of meaning, I study matters of, you know, content, tradition, and so on. And there I'm realizing how capitalism, especially what we see here in the United States, has been very damaging to Christianity and certainly to other religious traditions as well, because it's shaping money, big money to be specific, is shaping both the organization of religion, of Christianity, and the content of our faith. You know, if you wonder about what can be said or not said in churches or in theological schools and universities, look at who's paying the bills. You know, if you wonder about uh, basic ideas in people's minds, look at the interests of big money. So, for instance, how do people think about God? You know, what, what would people think about God? You know, obviously, some guy on a throne sitting in heaven is a popular image, but that image today, I would submit to you, looks more and more like a heavenly CEO. That's not what I find in the Abrahamic traditions, this sort of, uh, you know, top-down ruler that basically has little concern for what's happening at the grassroots, you know, uh, with the least of these. In Christianity, of course, that's the opposite. Jesus is tremendously concerned with what's happening with the least of these. In the Abrahamic traditions, you have images, many images of God, not as a king, not as a CEO, but as a working person. In the creation stories, God plants a garden, creates Adam from clay. It's God, not, not God sending some workers to do menial labor. Uh, God oftentimes in the Hebrew traditions uh, does the work that's attributed to women uh, and so on. So, so you have in the Abrahamic traditions, anti-capitalist traditions, perhaps, if you want to put it this way, uh, that are very interesting and that can teach us a lot about how life can be lived differently. So my problem here with capitalism is that it becomes so all-encompassing, shapes us so much to the core that we're not even able to reclaim our own alternative ways of lives and traditions anymore. That's dangerous for democracy. It's dangerous for religion. And I would say it's actually dangerous uh, for people and the planet. By the way, uh, I have a new book coming out on this topic that's titled Theology in the Capitalocene. Theology in the Capitalocene, uh, you can actually already pre-order it on Amazon, uh, that, that other capitalist uh, book warehouse uh, that, uh, that you're fully aware of. Jorg, in the little bit of time we have left, can you tell us, just as briefly as possible, I know that across Europe and indeed in Latin America and many other places, Christian socialism has been alive in many organizations that have been active throughout the last century. The United States is remarkable by not having that. Is that about to change in your mind? I think so, yes. Of course, if you go back to Europe, uh, it's very interesting to look at the old historical traditions of Christianity and socialism. In Switzerland, for instance, the Swiss Socialist Party has close relationships. I mean, some of the famous theologians all the way back to Karl Barth uh, were members of the party, and uh, and they had uh, 
still have these conversations. However, I think what a lot of people don't realize and what I want to say here just briefly, there's some really deep historical roots of socialism and religion in the United States itself that most people don't realize. That goes back a hundred years uh, and more, you know, late 19th century, where these things were already basically discussed and, and also uh, practiced. But today, I think the time has come when we're realizing that socialism is actually more American than we ever realized. I would say socialism is as American as apple pie. And a lot of young people are beginning to realize that. And that's uh, what we're finding the resonance we're getting. All right, you've been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. To my audience, I want not only to thank you for joining us today and hoping that Uh, you found this as interesting as I did, but I want to ask you to stay up to date with the latest from Democracy at Work by joining our mailing list. Please visit our website, democracyatwork.info, to learn more about all the ways you can partner with us. I look forward to speaking with you again next week.